When Nigel Cannings first came on the Scardy podcast back in November, the clocks had just gone back and Nigel told us how this was his worst time of year due to suffering from seasonal affective disorder. Over the course of the very moving episode, Nigel also told us about his diagnosis with bipolar disorder and the impact that has had on his life and career. Now Nigel is back as the clocks go forward and the days are getting longer to discuss how the world is shifting to living with COVID, exciting new compliance technology and opens up even more about his condition. Welcome to Breakdown to the Boardroom Part 2 with Nigel Cannings and Nick Corey. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Scardi podcast. Hey Nigel, um, it's great to be back with you. And uh, as we promised everyone, we were going to come back in the week when the hour went the other way, because uh, you, I think, very brilliantly raised awareness for everyone about uh, SADS or Seasonal Adjusted Adjustment Disorder. Um, and the fact that when we last did this podcast, we were going into what was probably a problematic power change. Uh, sorry, time change, not power change, time change. Um, <laughs> talking about regime change, you've got stuff like that going on. Um, and uh, as, as we sit here, you know, I, I, I can look out of the window. We've had the most gorgeous day, you know, bright sunshine. It's the start of the week. I have a magnolia in the garden that's in full bloom. Um, everything feels great. And is this, is this what, you know, am I getting more of it or do, is, it, is, is this feeling mag- magnified for you this, to, uh, you know, this week of the year? How does it work for you? Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 starts, uh, it starts a couple of weeks earlier when you begin to feel that longer day coming on. I think, I think those days when you open your eyes in the morning and, and sadly I do get up pretty early and, and you open your eyes in the morning and there's a little bit of, you know, the hint of light coming in through the curtains and and I think those that's the moment at which it really starts to feel real again and and I think there is that kind of almost a sense of kind of renewal and and rebirth but in a you know in a mental health sense at this point because you know I I used to think of you know maybe the whole point was that you know Christmas was shoved in the middle as a as a pagan festival for something to do in the middle of the dark bit and it was all supposed to get better after that but I was reflecting a couple of days ago that actually by the time you get to March you've had six months of this you know it's not you know Christmas is not really the time is it it's just a it's a way station on the way to it getting even worse and and so yeah absolutely I would say that really around now that kind of sense of of, of a lifting, almost uh, kind of a, of, a, of of an optimism and uh, a kind of looking forward to the future. I mean, you're you're a pretty creative guy, right? You're you're in a creative industry. You you're you're making products and so on. Does it affect your creativity, or is that you know not really part of it? It's just your mood levels, or do they feed into each other? How does it work? Yeah, it, it drives drives my stuff nuts actually this time of year because what generally happens is I sit down and, and we'll kind of start talking about stuff and it's like oh yeah and, and there's you know something else and let's do this and you know add add various other things and and I think that's been exacerbated this year because we have actually had a few face to face meetings and and I do think that a combination of of kind of getting creative people together at a creative time of year, you know, particularly for me, suddenly really starts to, to feed into that. And, and there is that sense of, um, you know, wanting to get on with things. And, and I think that 
you know, in many senses, there must be a reason why it's the start of the tax year now that, you know, that, you know, this is suddenly everyone's thinking about, right, okay, let's go off and, and do stuff. So yeah, definitely for me, um, this is when it's probably one of, for me, one of the most creative times of year. And that's good because it helps kind of set the tone for what we do um, kind of really for the next 12 months after that. Yeah, yeah, no, got it. And and as you mentioned, you've been back seeing staff face to face. And uh, so is are the offices open for you guys or are you still sort of? It's a weird what's one. The model? Yeah, it's a weird one that um, we the, the office has been open all the way through the pandemic, but really only open in a, in a, as a kind of mental health escape valve, if I'm honest, for, for people who have been stuck at home and would rather go and stare at a different set of four walls than the ones that surround them when they're kind of stuck in their home office. And, and we've had, you know, some people have been in quite a lot, um, have just gone in once or twice a week, um, other people periodically. I have to say that I've not been in that much um, during the pandemic, and but now all of a sudden I think, I'm in four times this week. So today's the only day this week that I won't be going in. Um, we're having an all hands meeting on Thursday. Um, it probably ridiculous at the time when we've got the, you know, today I think is the highest recorded case level ever uh, for COVID in this country, but it's, you know, we're operating this double think at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's, we, we've had the, we've had the offices open and, and we did downsize the offices um, at the start of the pandemic. We came, to the end of our lease and we thought well no one really knows how long this is going to go on so we so we downsize but we are actually looking um in the next few months possibly to move to a much bigger office space to reflect that kind of opening up again for those people who, who want to get together and and i think people have reacted really well to it they particularly the the research guys um they love bouncing ideas off each other. They love talking to each other. So um, we, we're we going to have to expand the space that we've made available to them. And, and what do you think that, you know, because obviously you're, you know, you guys are thinking almost of, of going back to, you know, the, the size of office that you had, that kind of model. How is it affecting um, the technology that, that, you know, are people going back to a traditional way of working? Or has, has the pandemic had some kind of, you know, indelible effect on some of the technology changes that we've made? And, and I'm, I'm meaning, you know, particularly with response to some of the kind of stuff that Intelligent Voices, you know, offers around the kind of the monitoring and so on. What, what are, you, are you getting a sense this early on, on what people are thinking about that and, and the effect that that's had? Or has but the pandemic no effect? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the traditional nine to five working week i mean i, re I really don't and and i you, know, you don't need to be a, a genius or, or kind of futurologist to work that one out i mean it, it's people have realized that the technology required to allow people to work remotely has matured enormously and has been battle tested during the course of this pandemic but it is going to cause irreparable harm to certain types of work and certain types of working and because you cannot and and I'd, i really thought early on in all of this that you could actually you could do it you could actually get away with having your entire team working remotely and and for us you know everything 
everything worked really well. The systems worked really well. The interpersonal relationships seemed to work really well. Um, but I think that having re-experienced some of that element of face-to-face, -face, you can see there was something missing. There was definitely mm -hmm. something missing. That a human connection, that that you know, because you know, I suppose you, you have to you have to kind of step back and think. Well, you know, why is it that we've all been congregating in offices all these years? Really, I mean, there's for, for quite a long time. You you know, even pre-computer, you could have. You know, I used to in my career as 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 I think you know, I was started off as a as a lawyer and the the most rapid means of communication we had was an envelope which was an interdepartmental memo which people used to kind of used to send around the office and you'd write someone's initials on it and then it would move around the office and and then you know some genius invented the fax machine and that was like you know amazing but actually i reckon that 95 percent of the time i could have started the week i could have gone into an office stuck a load of files in my briefcase and done most of it at home so there's probably you know we, we've been working in offices because there's a supervisory thing people want to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to that's easily solved today mm -hmm. you, know, you know that you need to be able to communicate with people well that's easily solved today um you need access to to files and books well that's even more easily solved than it was before um but but yeah i i think that we're going to we are going to evolve into a hybrid model, which probably means that a lot of people will be spending like Thursday. I think I think one of the problems is that we've got this all this office space. And what's going to happen is it's going to be the same amount of office space, but occupied only one day a week. And everyone's going to pick Thursday. It's just like, you know, it's, you know I mean, who the hell wants to go into the office on Monday and Friday? Um, you know, and so and 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 it's going to be really interesting generational challenge i think because for for people at our age and stage we've done the office thing you know we've done the commuting thing and so in a sense we'll pick and choose it you know mm -hmm. and we and we we're at that point where we can and i think for us a lot of it is going to be well actually i find that meeting people face to face for you know an hour two three hours allows me to get my job done more effectively, um, but do I need to spend all the time in the office? No. I think when you look at people from the younger generation, and this is this is one of the things which has troubled me all the way through the pandemic, because I've got um, I've got children who are entering the workplace um, in their early twenties now, and they've really lost that kind of initial connection and that initial kind of building of interpersonal relationships and a mentorship and all of those things that actually were really important about going into the office um and they've had isolation and i and i've seen it in my own family um with kind of people who've entered the workplace have gone into jobs which haven't been particularly suitable for them perhaps and have suffered terribly as a result of it because there's this awful sense of isolation which i think that this type of communication magnifies you know, in the in the same way that you know when we send emails to each other i'm always really careful about what i put in emails and i think really carefully about what what would it sound like if someone read this to me cold 
you know, if, the, if I had no context to it. And I think that, that this type of video communication has the same issue. It, it's very easy to, um, to come off in a way that you really don't expect to do so. Whereas when you sit in a room with someone, you can talk, you can gauge the body language, you can, um, and also you're going to see that person afterwards. And that's the other thing, you know, we, if in the office situation, as soon as you click end on one of these Zoom calls, that person has disappeared. You're not going to bump into them 10 minutes later at, at the, you know, at the water cooler. I don't know what, you know, do they still have water coolers, but you know, that's, um, or in the kitchen and have a chat about something which might help deflect some of the things that you said, create a relationship. It's very, it's this type of communication is really brutal. Mm. And, and I think that for, for young people entering the workplace who don't have that experience there, that is, that is causing issues that is causing genuine mental health issues and as I said I've seen it in my own family with people um, entering the workplace who have felt very very isolated um, and it's very difficult to help someone in that situation how do you, you know, move them through I mean we've we've managed to do it but um, I'm sure there are plenty of people for whom who haven't been so lucky and are, and are feeling very trapped at the moment. I mean do you think Nigel you know, it's a really interesting point you make and an interesting observation. And, and I guess there's another sort of observation in there, in that in this, pan, you know, in pandemic life, we have a kind of, you know, the, the, the amplification on what you and I, you know, look, look at in, in our careers is kind of really ramped up, i.e., you know, I'm thinking about the indelible, in, in, you know, the indelible footprint of all of the communication methods that we've discussed, whether it's a Zoom like we're on now, whether it's an email, whether it's a chat message, all of that is indefinitely there, right? Whereas if you're face-to-face -face in an office, at least there's a moment, there's a conversation, there might be some euphoria, some anger, some uh, conflict, but then it's gone. You know, it goes away with time. Whereas all of the things we've talked about, uh, and, you know, I'm in investigations, I'm looking at Ecoms, chat rooms all the time. I'm listening to voice. It's there. I mean, I know there are sort of, I guess, you know, statutory limitations on how long we hang on to data for. But but also, you know, it, it has a much longer footprint. Do you think that's a, a fair observation? Or you know, what, what what do you think about that? Well, very much so. And, and particularly in the industries that we work in, it's got worse. I mean, the the retention obligations for um, for audio and video data. Uh, which used to only be a year um, here in the UK, you know, MIFID 2 is pushing this out sort of six, seven years now in terms of the, the ongoing storage for this. And a, you know, what we, you know, back in the day, you know, people used to pick the phone up. That was always the joke. You know, if you, if you wanted to say something that you didn't want recorded, quote unquote, you'd pick up the phone. And, and I think one of the things that people have discovered during the pandemic is that because there's, there's, a, there's an increasing paranoia um, which has been, you know, I think in a sense quite correctly fueled by the FSA about capturing electronic communications. The net's gone really wide. And I think we're seeing people who are being captured now who perhaps wouldn't previously have expected that to happen. And, and sometimes it's incidentally because they happen to join a call which is being recorded for, for regulatory purposes. Or in fact, their employer has decided that they are the type of person who falls within that net.
So you see people, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are, whose every, you know, every action is being recorded. And, and now we're looking at, at you know, video analysis technology to see, you know, and, and the, the ostensible reason for that is to make sure that if I'm engaging in a, in a contract discussion, I don't say, um, you know, we'll do it for, you know, we'll do it for three million. Then I hold up two fingers like that show, you know, like saying, don't worry, it's only two. You know, it, it's that the nonverbal communication or, or even, you know, holding up messages, you know, like that, where you stuff that. And, and so we're seeing this type of technology come in. So actually the the surveillance around it is 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 increasing. And and actually, even in our day to day lives, because um, companies have latched onto the fact that you can sell more things to people if you listen into telephone conversations and Zoom conversations and analyze buyers' reactions to things, there's been an explosion in people using, um, using recordings to try and determine how better to sell to the next person. And quite often you'll be on a video call and you'll have, you know, blah, 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 recorder. And it's like, who the hell is that you know oh yeah it's just we we record this for for training purposes yeah training your algorithm purposes that's what you're saving it for not not for anything else so you're right that one of the things about a face-to-face -face meeting one of the things about the casual encounter is unless you're sitting in a police interview room the chances of that being recorded for posterity are pretty low and therefore you can take a summary of that meeting out of the meeting. Although I have to say, I mean, we've been approached a number of times during the course of the pandemic to, uh, by people who are looking to introduce meeting capture technology because they've seen that the benefits of, of recording and analyzing online meetings are so high and quite often for, for knowledge capture purposes. So. You know, a lot of this is it's we're going beyond surveillance now. The kind of next gen idea is how can I summarize what was said quickly? How can I do note taking really quickly? How can I record this stuff for posterity? And they're actually worried that they're going to lose that when they go back into a physical environment. So a lot of people we're seeing are saying, well, actually, we'd like to be able to capture these meetings. So I think that the, the scope of monitored communication or sorry, the scope of unmonitored communication is going to shrink quite significantly because of the benefits that people can see of, of capturing these types of communications. So I think there's going to come a point where we're all going to be huddling in the corridor, <laughs> you know, hoping that no one's got their phone on, which of course is listening all the time. Well, that's, that's an interesting one, um, which I'll, I'll come back to that one. But I, I, I'm just interested, Nigel, from a kind of a, a mental health point of view, if, if people have a sense that there is no escape from the monitoring. Is there a risk there from a mental health point of view? Or is it going to be the case that actually everyone will just kind of get used to it and, and that will just be it and they'll be part of the fabric and people just kind of get on with it? What do you think? I think, again, these things tend to be generational because um, we, we there's a whole generation of people now whose personal data has been sucked up and reused by Facebook and Google and you know, all of the all of the big guys and no one says anything about it anymore 
I mean, they really don't. If you think every single every single email that you send, if you use Gmail, is being used in some way, shape, or form to advertise back to you. You know, you look at your email and gosh, that's surprising. I sent someone an email about fence posts the other day and I'm getting an advert about fencing. How how did that happen exactly? Well, you know, because you sacrificed all of your all of your privacy and your freedom in exchange for free email and, you know, free social media. And, you know, these servers cost something to run, guys. You know, I mean, you've got to, you know, you've got to remember this. So um, I think that we we have sacrificed an enormous amount of personal freedom um, in exchange for utility, really. And, and, you know, you only have to think about walking around the streets of London. So the question that anyone would ask themselves is, do I feel happier knowing that there is a recording of my activity which will help a perpetrator of a crime be caught later on when I'm being mugged or even in real time because someone's watching it do I feel happy with that or am I worried about that one drunken occasion where I slipped over and looked like an idiot um this is my much younger self I'm talking about but you know being being recorded and played back on social media for posterity and actually that's another thing because you know everyone's videoing each other I said these are generations of people who are literally going around videoing their every single move um, and in fact, volunteering to be videoed, if you look at things like TikTok. So I think that it's it's only the the old crusties like us who are going to be looking back saying, well, you know, I remember the days when you could actually do something stupid and get away with it. When you could say something stupid and get away with it. I think it's just something which will, people will come to accept uh, over time. And But it's always going to be because you're trading it off against something else. Yeah. I think that's the thing is, you know, for free email or, you know, police being called at the right time or whatever it might be and and the one thing that I and and you asked about the mental health aspect of that and I think again what you've got is a sliding scale of problems because if you sell it back to people properly you can actually show them the advantages of that type of monitoring so you know I walk around with a smartwatch on all the time and it monitors my um my pulse all the time however many heartbeats I get a day. And once, just once, I got a high heartbeat notification. And I was actually able to take a step back and think, why is this happening to me? I was in an intensely stressful situation at the time. And, you know, and and actually that helped, it helped me analyze that situation and look at it. So if if we're wearing biometric devices, which are capable of monitoring our health, then why not other things? Why not analyze someone's voice? Why not put ourselves in a situation where we can actually start to say to someone, you know, we're worried because over the last three months or so, your behavior has become erratic, your, um, the stress levels in your voice are changing. Um, even the way you look is changing. You know, you're, you're washed out all the time or whatever it might be. So I think that as long as you manage the trade-off properly, you can actually sell these things back to people as long as they're getting genuine benefits out of it. And I, I want to live forever, Nick. You know, I'm, I'm very keen on this whole living forever thing. So, you know, if, 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 if my computer is going to tell me that, you know, there's something wrong with me, I mean, just, I said, just think about this. So, I'm sitting here at the moment and 
the so I've got a I've got a 4K camera because I'm a technologist and I have to have a decent camera. But as over the next few years, we're going to see the resolution of webcams increase dramatically. And the reason for that is the pandemic, because we've all been sitting there using these generally quite shockingly bad webcam things, all squinting and thinking, oh, yeah, can't really see them very well. Um, and the same with microphone technology. I mean, the reason I wear a headset is because I do speech recognition and I know that the best way to get, get it out. But for most people, it feels quite unnatural. So we'll see microphone technology. And, and this, the technology exists at the moment. It's just we don't really implement it. Capturing the voice a lot better. So with my 4K camera, at some point in the next few years, if I were to develop a small kind of a small patch of skin on my face, say, or something which looked like a freckle or just even something slightly rough, then my, my system, which of course at this point is not going to be local, it's going to be in Logitech's cloud or somewhere, will be able to say, Nigel, we're slightly concerned about the fact that there's a lesion that has appeared on your body. Um, I personally would be really pleased to think, tiny bit freaked out, but pleased to think that my health could be protected just by having a meeting with you, Nick. In fact, my health is already, I already feel better having a meeting with you, you see, so it works. My heart rate's gone down, you know, all is well with the world. But, but yeah, I, I think that it, it's, it's about selling the positive benefits of this technology to people, as well as, um, you know, was recognizing that there are people who genuinely feel threatened by being monitored and tracked and they don't all live in montana yeah. you know there are there are you know there are people out here in the real world who feel a bit bad about this type of stuff and it, it, it's going to be impossible to be not you know to not be monitored and and i think that's something that we have to recognize and that the fear and paranoia you know, you, you read these things about people who using um keystroke logging technology just to make sure people are at their keyboards um, who have been monitoring internet activity during the pandemic. How far do you go with that before yeah. it, it, it goes from being productive to just being you know, downright intrusive and creepy? Well, I, I, I'm really glad that you, you've said that the, the camera technology is going to improve because I was really troubled. And I don't know if you remember this story with about six months into the pandemic, there, there was reportedly a rise in, in people getting plastic surgery because they were really <laughs> upset about the way their face looked on, on kind of, you know, Zoom and Skype and so on. And people were taking, the, you know, the drastic steps to get, uh, get nose jobs done and so on and so forth. Um, but apparently because of the way, nothing more than the camera technology, mm. you know, obviously looking in the mirror never had this problem for them before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there, there is the change is not coming quick enough I don't there, know. there's a there's a secret to that have a distracting background and that way no one ever looks at your face you see that's the only reason i do it well yeah you have an amazing background amazing background and it's a very good quality one too uh which i, I wouldn't uh you know ex expect anything less from you <laughs> nigel <laughs> so I mean, we, you know, we touched on it sort of at, you know, at the start, but th thinking about, um, you know, the, the other optimistic thing that sort of coincided with now is we, we kind of got the, the, the all clear that we're kind of, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic, we've got to live with COVID and you, you've obviously observed that we, 
you know, have the highest infection levels ever, ever, but we're kind of, we continue to sort of peel everything back. And there is a, a you know, more optimistic tone out there. Um, how does something like, you know, the terrible events that, that are occurring um, in Ukraine and, and that came so unexpectedly, how, how does that um, impact yourself? You know, I'm just more of your sort of your, your mood and, and do, you, do you feel anxiety about that or how does it affect you? Yeah, I do. I actually feel terrible anxiety as a result of it. I have to say, I, I don't know why. And I didn't think it was just me. I felt very personally affected by it. I mean, I have I have Ukrainian friends. I have very good friends of mine who are, who are married to Ukrainians. It felt very real. But actually, the, I think the thing for me, and I was trying to explain this to, to my, uh, my youngest daughter the other day, who's 18 now. Um, I was trying to explain what it was like growing up in the 70s and 80s under the spectre of the bomb. And, and I can remember, um, I can't remember what it was, I think it was Threads and, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and just, you know, and they, the whole, you know, and then the government declassified all the protect and survive films. And, and it was just terrifying. I mean, I can, I can remember, and I can remember reading obsessively about nuclear war at that point. And I had books on it and, you know, learning all about the minutes to midnight and, and, and it was, you know, living, living through that time in the late 70s and early 80s, when the, the more precarious the situation became in the Soviet Union, the, you know, the closer we seemed to genuine annihilation, um, as, is a fear which has never left me. And, and I can still remember you know, watching the Berlin Wall come down on TV and just thinking, well, that's one less thing to worry about. You know, I'm, mm. um, yeah. I could get hit by a bus, I could fall out of a window, but the chances of actually being annihilated in a nuclear conflict seem to have re seem to have retreated. So, yeah, I, I've I've kind of been carrying around this this sense of, you know, somewhere between unease and dread over the last few weeks, and and so I was very active trying to um, help raise money to donate money. We we. We gave money as a company. We, you know, gave money personally. Just kind of anything, because there's that feeling of uselessness. You know, you kind of. I think that's the other thing that a lot of people feel. It's like I just feel I want to do something. I don't feel you know, necessarily that my politicians are giving me what I want. Um, uh, yeah, I just a, a sense of of anxiety and dread, and that at the moment I would say that kind of comes on in waves again. I I am an obsessive doom scroller. I mean, I really am. I don't want to be. I can't help myself, but I'm, you know, reading. I've got, I've, you know, people I know around Viv, um, you know, close working colleagues of mine. I've got um, friends who have got relatives to in, in Kiev, and and you know, you just, you know, it's not going to affect me personally unless Putin launches a nuclear attack. Hopefully, relatively unlikely. Um, but it is having such an unbelievable effect on people. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's interesting what you say, because I'm, I'm a similar generation to you. And, and I remember you've mentioned threads. I remember watching it at school. And then after it, you know, kids in the class just crying for yeah. hours because of that fear, that dread. And that that has absolutely evaporated from our lives because that, you know, you just 
as you say, once the, the Berlin Wall came down and, and, and essentially it was all kind of finished, um, there was a very big change. And I think we've, we've enjoyed this kind of a, a huge peace dividend. You know, you, you and I have gone for kind of, yeah, I mean, there have been, been wars, but not, you know, that, that sort of, that, that fear has, has, has gone for, I think, you know, 30 years of our lives. And that's quite a sustained period. Um, and then, you're, you know, it has, uh, it has very much re-emerged in the, in the last sort of month. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, why, why I, I bring it up is, you know, thinking about, um, you know, bipolar and how, you know, outside influences can have a kind of destabilizing effect. Um, I, I've had to sort of ask myself the question, um, whether, am I imagining what is happening out here? Because what has occurred in the last couple of, uh, or the last month has been, you know, quite resonant for the kind of um, feelings that my, my own brother, who, is, who has bipolar, when he goes and when he goes manic, he, he feels very much like he is kind of driving world events and, you know, and, 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 and very much in, involved in them. And I've, I've had a terrible fear with what's happened lately because of that anxiety, that stress that you've talked about, um, coupled with this kind of big world event, that that could be a, a you know, really big trigger for him. Yeah. And it's been really uh, marked for me um, because he, he had a, his last manic episode was effectively in the, in the first month of the pandemic. You know, that change in life just completely set him off. Um, and it was also coming out of that the first time that he actually accepted and acknowledged that he had uh, an illness and needed to get care. And this, this sort of with this event, I've been able to talk to him for the first time, Nigel, and say, you know, I'm not worried about you, but I have been worried for you with what's happening. Do you, do you understand? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I do. But actually, it's been a really brilliant thing um out of the of what happened at the start of the pandemic and his realization that i've been able to talk to him about it because I, you know you as you and i discussed on the first episode i think it, there was a kind of rubicon moment for you where you kind of understood that you had a, a, a problem and i think that's happened for him in the pandemic too and that i think has been a really you know good thing uh, for our our relationship, um, so I guess you know what what we were we were coming back to talk to about here was the sort of the the optimism and, and the good stuff in in mental health in this episode, and you know I guess I'm sort of you know what I, what I'm you know asking you about is you know what are the kind of the positives um, do you think out of out of mental health for you because they're there must be some, or are there not? <laughs> why, why, is it, why is it good to be mad? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. Um, um, well, would you, let me ask you this, Nigel. Yeah. Is, is bipolar part of, of you? Are you part of your identity? Or would you be content if, if someone said tomorrow, I can just take that away from you and you'll never, never have 
had it again, and actually all memory of, of it will be gone from you. Would you, would you accept that deal? Or would that be a really difficult choice? It would, it would be a difficult choice because it, it's been so tightly wound into my life for so long. It would be impossible to say what would have been better and what would have been worse as a result of it. I mean, it, it's, it taught me a lot about my, my family and my family relationships and, and you know, particularly my marriage um and how strong that is um and you know if if i i mean my my honest answer is i would take it away not because of me but because of the impact it had on the people around me so i think that there you know, there are and have been some positive elements to me very personally mm. so you know it is a disease which does tend to foster creativity there may have been points in my life when that's been good but actually I remember when I you know when I went to hospital when I finally realized what was going on I just said you know give me give me everything give me all the drugs give me everything you can because I just want to be normal I just want to be like everyone else and and actually what I discovered was uh, as my doctor said to me at the time something called normal for Nigel um you know actually the person that came out of it is still creative still you know reasonably good fun to be around um you know, it has the same issues as everyone else he gets sad he gets angry he gets frustrated he gets happy um the only difference is i worry about all of those things i worry about being sad like other people because i'm concerned that maybe it's you know i'm i'm having a problem again i'm worried about being really happy about things because i'm worried that maybe i'm hypermanic again um, i'm worried about being super creative because sometimes i can be super creative because i think i'm really going to a manic phase and maybe none of that's true actually it's just it's just me but it's taught me a lot about myself and, and so i said it would be it for, for me it would be really difficult to know and i, I remember seeing stephen fry talking about this when he, he was refusing to take medication because he said he felt that it would take take away a part of him. I think he's changed his mind now on that because he, like me, has realised that all the medication he's doing is sloughing away the bad bits. Mm. Um, but yeah, for the and I, and I think and maybe this is a, a sign that actually I'm not symptomatic um, at all these days is the fact that I would get rid of it for those people around me because <laughs> it, it's had a terrible, terrible impact on on my on my family my relationships um and makes me so worried because of the genetic element of it i've probably been obsessing for years over the impact that it might be having on my own children kind of obsessively looking out for signs which probably aren't there mm. uh, and that and that can't be a good thing so yeah to answer the question in 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 a single phrase yeah take it away wow okay but I'm interested there also because you sort of you say that there is a certain amount of living with you know doubt and and I guess fear and you know we're talking about perspectives because you know you, you you're wondering whether am I getting too sad is is this something coming on etc how do you how do you keep that perspective how do you keep your perspective or is, is there someone else that helps you keep that perspective or there people I mean how do you how do you do it it, it used to it used to be people 
Um, it used to be so. You know, going back to when we when we first spoke uh, around the change of the year, and and what would happen is I would be I'd be insufferable for a, a week or so, and 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 it was a very particular pattern. And um, my wife would just say to me, she "Said you're doing it again, Nigel." She said, "If you look to the date, have you seen what date it is?" It's like, oh God, yeah, it's, it's then again, isn't it? So I, I'm now I now keep a sort of mental diary where I kind of, because of looking at, at the cyclical nature of it over the year now, I'm able to say, well, actually in October, November time, it's particularly bad. I have to be careful about that. Um, you know, mustn't put myself in situations where it, it could be triggered very easily. And then this time of year, I feel happier and more elated. And, and I know that that's because we're coming out of the worst of it. And the day's getting longer, it's sunny, it's it's great. And so I feel very uplifted as a result of it. So so yeah, but it's you know, we're talking about 20 years now. So it, it's it's not something which has happened overnight. And and I suppose when I you know, when I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, as we all do from time to time, feeling anxious, I'm able to take a step back and say, How many times have you done this before, Nigel? I think that. I think if there's anything that I'd ever recommend to anyone who who suffers from mental health problems, it is you have to have kind of a diary, either one that you write down or one that you keep in your head, which says, when was the last time I felt like this? You know, did I get through it? How did I cope with it? And I, and I think the biggest question always is, did I get through it? Because that is actually the, 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 it's the bleakness of those moments when you think I've hit something which is so bad, I can't get past it. And, and my, you know, my, my constant obsession when, when I think about particularly bipolar and particularly in men is suicide because of it's, you know, it, it's the, the one thing you can't come back from and yet is unfortunately so incredibly common so I'm, I, I kind of do these I mean it sounds ridiculous anyway, but this kind of suicide health check sometimes really I'm not you know I am not and never have been suicidal but you know I certainly in the darkest days it was one of those things that you kind of think about in a very very abstract sort of way it's very almost clinical type of way it's like it's not something to do to myself but you know what would you know what would someone in my position do if they felt this way um and, and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, just making sure that I remember that the way I'm feeling now is the way I felt before and this time before and this time before. And the same at the other end of the scale as well, because, you know, I'm, I can be frightened to be happy. I mean, I, I am often, in fact, frightened to be happy because it worries me that maybe it's more than that, that kind of that euphoric feeling of just being happy without any strings is 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 a feeling that I also associate with the times when I was hypermanic and I was happy for all the wrong reasons you know mm -hmm. I had no right to be happy <laughs> you know my body was flooding me with happy hormones but actually I should have been severely worried so so yeah it, it's it's had a very long-term profound effect on on my own ability to to judge my own emotions so it does as i said for a long time it required other people 
to do that for me and, and having that support network being able to actually talk to someone about it you know that again is you know if you can't talk to someone about it if you can't admit how you feel I mean again talking about your brother Nate you know the fact is the biggest step the most profound step is that one where you say yes actually there is a problem here you know you the first time you communicate that to another human being and that other human being is a person who's capable of responding to it because you know i did say it to people who didn't respond to it um that's even worse you know you kind of tear your heart out and say right here it is pumping bleeding in my hands and people are telling brushing you off so pull yourself together you know which which happens that very first time you have that connection is really the is is that first point but you need to do it over and over and over and over again and you need to have someone watching you and monitoring you and and helping you um and and i think support from friends from family um is really important and i was trying i was reading an article today about someone you know who who is trying to engender better mental health in their own organization just talking about the there's the still enormous difference about if you describe someone who has cancer and chemotherapy and goes into remission and the enormous sympathy which comes with that to someone who has had some form of serious mental health episode but people still they don't want to know about it they don't you know it's not it's still dirty and taboo and because there's no you know, they were they were being strange and weird and unpleasant and you know that's somehow that almost like it was their fault we still yeah. we still we still blame people we we blame people with mental health issues for their mental health issues we do and and i don't know whether that's an innate thing or whether we've been conditioned to do it um i suspect it's it's probably a bit of both you know, we we react there's something about seeing you know seeing someone who's in physical pain which makes us feel sympathy. There's something about people who are in mental pain that we're all slightly revolted by. Um, and, and even if you've suffered with it yourself, it's there's still that slight check beforehand to say, no, you know, this is not their fault. This is not, they're not to blame for this. Uh, and then you have to be prepared to step up and um and help them with it and and keep helping i think that's the thing you can't just help once it's an over and over and over thing um yeah i mean i think i think you know optimistically that that there is definitely a long way to go on that but i think there's been a i think there's been a sea change now yeah. on, on, on on attitudes which is which is a really really good thing um but as you say it's it's a long you know it's a long journey um, that we, you know, as a society have got to, you know, continue down. Um, and, and, but that, I do think that change, you know, has, 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 has happened and is happening in a big way. So that is, that is, you know, only to the good. Um, I, but I hope, more to do. yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope you're right, Nick. I mean, clearly in the last couple of years, you know, ju just having this type of discussion, I mean, the fact that I can speak openly about what's happened to me um although i have to say if i was 22 23 years old at the beginning of my career you and i would not be having this conversation um i would not feel empowered to stand up and say 
here's the terrible things which have happened in my life here's the struggles i'm going through um yeah i'm in a i'm in a very strong position i can do this i have my own business i'm you know reasonably articulate um you know and and i don't mind doing it so so the so the door is and, and if you look it's funny if you look on linkedin um you know there's a lot of posts about people who are suffering from mental health problems and and i think often you know probably because it's something of interest linkedin that picked up and and it gets reinforced but they tend to be certain types of people at certain stages in their career who talk about it um people who are a bit more comfortable with it often people who are a bit older um not actually often people who are in their 50s and 60s so much but people in their you know kind of late 30s and early 40s um who are willing to talk about it or they'll be talking about someone else um you see the most awful things about people you know you know my best friend committed suicide and and this is the struggles that they went through type of stories and i think it's it's great that those things are highlighted it's very 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 challenging to read but it is very important but i suppose that it's so many people are supporting it in the abstract i think that's the problem is it's you know you have got very personal very personal contact with the problem you know you've seen it firsthand and you know if you see all these people you know yeah you know waving flags for mental health it's great that you're speaking out um i said this on the last podcast and there's a whole bunch of people out there who would definitely not give me a job as a result of that um i've had some people who i admire and respect who have come to me and and said you know how pleased they were um that you had me on the last podcast you know how it's fantastic that um someone is speaking up for this and so thank you nick because you've given me a platform to be able to to talk about this as well but you know how how would how would so many individuals react if they were actually faced with it that's the question i always ask myself what and and i'm not sure that it's necessarily their fault i just don't think that we're giving people the tools to cope with it you know if if you if you if you appeared in front of me with blood pouring down your arm I'd know what to do about it you know if you appeared in front of me in floods of tears saying that you know your you could see no future and and your life was over or you know these terrible things you know you, the stress at work or whatever you know probably now at this point I've got the tools to cope with that at least to a degree but 20 plus years ago probably not so so i do think that whilst we are beginning to be more accepting of it we all have a duty to try and learn and understand what we can do to help people in that situation and again it's one of the things i think that we were keen to emphasize in this podcast is that you know it's acceptance is one thing help is the next thing what practical things can we do to help the people around us you know how would i help my friend how would i help my employee um and and that i think is is one of the key things i mean clearly you know this is exactly what you've been doing Nick. i mean you've been providing that that help that comfort that support 
to your brother to help him through this very difficult time and you're checking up on him you know you're asking him the questions you're you're trying and even better you're trying to put yourself in his shoes and say if i had if i had some insight into how he was feeling i was looking out on the world you know how would i feel under those circumstances i've you know gauging his reactions to other things and i think it's fantastic that that you've been doing that um and and i think we have to you know we have to talk to people in that situation in a in a clear calm way you know, not being patronizing about it but just to be supportive a matter of fact and and people most people appreciate it not everyone you know there's no talking to people is not a universal panacea some people some people can be helped some some can't but but i think that you know, what what you have done there is, is a fantastic example of the type of practical help that we can give the people that we love the people that surround us and just that can be enough to make all the difference between someone whose life goes completely off the rails and someone who can slowly be brought back into the fold and dare i say be made normal because actually at the end of the day anyone who's been through any form of mental health crisis you know, it, it will come out the other end and say i just want to be like everyone else you know i don't it's all i want really i just want to be normal like everyone else i want to have the normal day-to-day -day stresses that everyone has i don't want to be i don't want to feel the way that i felt and and i've always thought that you know we we do that by trying to draw on our own experiences by trying to put ourselves in that situation to think if i were where you are and 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 you know, mental health problems come in all all different shapes and forms it's organic something like bipolar it's it's driven by situation it's you know by um losing jobs and um, grief is clearly one of the most common ones and mm. we we have a shockingly few grief counselors available in this country um who you don't have to pay a lot of money for and i i was able to work with a friend of mine and who suffered a, a very very terrible personal loss um in her 50s um and to help her find access to the right person to talk to um you know but but it's just about thinking like that it's offering practical advice and being ready for someone to slap you in the face and tell you to go away you know i think that that's the most important thing is is you know be prepared to be rejected yeah people don't like being told what to do yeah yeah and and they're hurting nigel and and i and i think i think that's what people overlook and i, I think i think what you're talking about you know ultimately is is acceptance and understanding and i think Think if you can find or try to find those two things you'll you'll go a long way to helping people um i, I really want to thank you um i think you've been brilliant you know again open talking to everyone and sharing your experiences and and i hope together um we have brought some kind of uh, acceptance and understanding for people um away from the podcast so thanks very very much for talking to us it's been great to have you back well, Nick, again, thank you very much for having me on. And, and again, if there's anyone out there who, you know, who is suffering, who is in pain, um, you know, 
I'm easily reachable. Um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just some bloke who's got bipolar and and has coped with it. Um, but you know, I'm I'm happy to offer what little help I can. And I think to repeat the other thing that I said on the other podcast is if you really are, you know, if you really are seriously in pain, if you you know, if you think if you're thinking of ending it, and there are people who will be at one point, phone the Samaritans. That's what they're there for. They're magnificent, magnificent people who um, who only exist to um, to help people who, you know, and, and they can be helped. There's no person out there who cannot be helped, who cannot get through the crisis that they're going through. Um, so, as I said, Nick, thank you for, for giving me a platform uh, just to talk a little bit about what I've been through. Um, and let's hope if it helps one person, then it was worth it. So thanks again. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scardi podcast. If you or someone you know has been affected by the issues covered in this episode, or you would like an improved understanding of mental health, please visit mind.org.uk. If you find yourself or someone you know in urgent crisis, please find immediate support at samaritans.org. Above all, we hope this episode can help start open and frank conversations in the workplace and continue to break down the stigma that still surrounds mental health.